Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Wealth Tech Show, a citywide podcast that focuses on technology and how it will change the future of investing and personal finance. This week, I'm joined by a wealth manager rather than a techie, but with good reason, as always. I'd like to welcome Chris Marshall, Investment Director at Dragon Investments to The Wealth Tech Show. Chris, how are you doing? Oh, very good. Thank you so much for having me on. And it's a pleasure to be here with you. And also, you've been hosting your own podcast recently. What does it feel like to be a guest? Uh, it actually feels a little bit more stressful than being the host, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> Normally, you come like with a scripted load of questions like you've got, yep. and um, uh, just off you go. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for you okay. to throw things at me. I'm going to ask you some horrible questions, Chris. No, I'm not. I'm not. Okay. Anyway, Chris, I've invited you to the show for good reason. Uh, and when I record this podcast, one of the aims is to outline why technology matters for wealth managers and financial advisors. And believe it or not, what I've not done so far is actively chat with a wealth manager who, to my mind gets it, kind of gets the, the point of, of integrating tech and really properly caring about it. So so here you are. And, and besides that, you, you work as, a, you know, besides being an investment director, you've got your podcast, which I just mentioned, called Transitional Matters, uh, which looks into mega trends and how investors can prepare for the future. And you've also got a book on the way, if I'm not mistaken. That, yeah, absolutely, which is, which is on innovation. So it's called, that's going to be called uh, Decoding Change, uh, because I, I fundamentally believe that we, we don't really have a good handle on the framework of innovation and how that interacts not only with the economy but with the wider society. So maybe we can we can yes. dwell on that as well. Oh, for sure. And uh, there, there are a few key themes I want to go through today. Um, mostly, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on the transitioning economy and, and also preparing for the future and, and how you do that as a wealth manager. To start, I'd like to go with the idea of the fourth industrial revolution. And I've seen varying descriptions of what the fourth industrial revolution actually is. I've even seen it referred to as Industry 4.0, which I thought was a bit much, to be honest. Um, but like the, the definition I'm going to go with, rather blandly, is the Wikipedia one, which says, the fourth industrial revolution conceptualizes rapid change to technology, industries and societal patterns and processes in the 21st century due to increasing interconnectivity and smart automation. So, Chris, as a as an investment manager, an investment director, no less, what what does the fourth industrial revolution mean to you? I I think you need to widen this back out, and if if that's all right, I'm going to widen Go it, it widen it back from what it means to the investment industry and and me personally, and perhaps kind of the portfolios I run, um, to what it means to society in general. Then maybe we can bring it back to sure. to the investment piece, because I th I honestly think you need to take a massive step back from these things to see the big picture to then refocus on the very kind of myopic changes which are which are happening uh, and all too often we dive in of, of that very like kind of granular detail first because it's really exciting and, and kind of that's where you see all this change but just taking that step back so let's let's just rewind a, a little bit I would argue against this the terminology of the fourth industrial revolution actually um, so Klaus Schwab uh, kind of it's, it's his phrase um, and the reason I kind of I, I agree with the sentiment of what he's saying but the, the I'm just going to change a little bit the terminology mm -hmm. and the first part is the, that word industry uh, or industrial um, is that certainly we have been through an industrialized society but where I'd say we're changing now is, is we're now moving far more towards a cyberkinetic, a digital landscape, which is profoundly different to mass production, heavy engineering, and, and those things which really have been present since the first industrial revolution. 
Yeah, if I can, sorry, because you, I can see you're on a roll there. Just quickly break down what you mean by cyberkinetic. So cyber, cyberkinetic is really kind of, so let's again rewind. So we're now talking about production systems and production systems are far bigger than industrial revolutions or waves of innovation. So we've had four in human history. So we went from hunter-gatherer, then the next production system was the agrarian system, and then we went to an industrialized society. Now, this cyberkinetic is basically the blending of both uh, organic and cyber uh, in one. So the, bl the blurring of virtual and physical worlds. Yeah, that was wonderfully done. And here's me using Wikipedia. So, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Chris. Yes, anyway, you were saying. Um, so, so I, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of argue against this idea of it's the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, I, I think the technology, that production system has changed. That started in the 70s, obviously, with the information revolution uh, or information technology revolution. And I'd also slightly argue against the numbering because I personally think that we've had five waves of innovation since... James Watts's steam engine, uh, that first industrial revolution. And the reason I, I'm kind of being so pedantic about that is because once you separate out them into the five waves, they actually occur at quite regular frequencies. And they, they, you start to see them occurring on about a 50-year time horizon, that we get this new emerging technology which brings a whole new way of doing everything. So we had the steam engine as the first industrial revolution, I would then say the second wave of, of uh, innovation was then the locomotive. Uh, we then got into steel production uh, and heavy engineering. We then came into the age of oil. And then most recently, we've just been through mm -hmm. the information technology. So I'm going to bring this all the way back to yes. your question uh, because I haven't actually answered that. Um, and, you know, how does this affect us? Well, what, what we see when we look back through history is every time you get a new production uh, or innovation paradigm, I'm going to call it, come through, the whole landscape of how the economy works, how businesses work, how technology operates, changes massively. And so what we have to be aware of, and I think awareness is the key, you have to be curious of what changes are happening. It doesn't mean you dive straight in, and it also doesn't mean you predict what's going to happen. But it's about being... Uh, aware of the changes going on around us and watching those develop because actually these these changes don't happen overnight they take decades to actually play out um, normally people think that change is super super fast because they're not aware of it until it's almost at the point of mass adoption and then all of a sudden it's forced upon them and they go where did this come from yeah and is that still the case in this age because you hear a lot of talk about Moore's law and innovation being quicker and quicker and quicker and happening sooner and sooner. Do we, are we still talking decades for shifts to happen now? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, we'll probably touch on a lot of the current technologies, but blockchain, um, you know, kind of the cryptocurrencies, all these different things. Uh, you know, let's let's just bring this back. You know, kind of Bitcoin itself was founded, what, 2007, 2008. So we're already 14 years on. Uh, and this is only starting to find practical application, even though it's it's been there for, for decades. Mm -hmm. Okay. And from a wealth management and investment perspective, I find it interesting that you've got this, this kind of keen eye for the future. And you're also involved in investing rather than necessarily the tech. Because often we speak to people involved with the back office tech, the people sure. who are building the tech solutions for companies. Now, you've got a different view. 
Now, for someone in your situation looking for a long-term investment strategy for, say, a young client, what does this revolution, albeit not the fourth, mean to you? you know, what, what are you investing in? Uh, I mean, really, so, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna st- stay away from like telling, saying like specific company names because I'll get in trouble for that. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> but but you've got to. So there's there's a f- couple of things which are really um, key again to understand here is is what happens when you get a new emerging technology um, is actually capital plays a really important role in it, and that's the financing mechanism for hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs of, of business structures of R&D departments to to test out this new idea this new technology and see if they can make it work what you really have to be careful of as, a, as, as an investor let's bring it back to that side is that's also the point you get bubbles because it's the new golden goose and you know all the money flows to work towards it and it becomes so speculative so overvalued because it's promising a new world and yet a lot of those initial concepts uh, aren't the lasting technology which which really transforms society so from a from a point of view of, of where you invest I think it's I, I think it's very much being aware of not chasing emerging technologies too soon that's that's probably rather than actually where you do put money it's sometimes knowing where not to put money mm-hmm. yeah and which mega trends because I know I know mega trends is a theme of your podcast yeah which mega trends interest you the most right now um so for, for me I, I I think it's the ones which really kind of are the ones which power innovation um, because innovation is kind of my my obsession mm-hmm. if you if you like uh, hence hence the book I've written and things like that. Um, and behind that, you start to see kind of a few key things happening. One is geopolitics. And obviously, right now, that's a very fascinating mm-hmm. theme. Uh, uh, another is demographics. Another is capital itself in terms of the cost of money, because that has a massive uh, implication as to how fast innovation can happen. And when we're talking about the cost of money, we also have to bring in how much debt there is around, you know. So the debt cycle is a is another mega trend really that's going on. Um, and then beyond that, you have to then bring in things like climate change. Yeah. Um, so those are probably the main ones which a lot of my work is is focused on because I see them as key drivers as understanding where innovation actually goes. Um, so to kind of give you a little bit of a, an example of behind some of those, so geopolitics. It, you know, right now, it's unsurprising if you have a good handle on the history of innovation. It's unsurprising that we're seeing such a rise in t- geopolitical tensions, in populism, in uh, kind of a shifting global order, I'm going to call it. Because behind an innovation system, so let's bring this back to the, the first mm-hmm. industrial revolution. So Britain had just essentially taken the global power they've become the global leader really probably from the dutch they were probably the previous economy which was the, the biggest economy at the time We've gone through the anglo-dutch wars another geopolitical tension time um, and we'd managed to to create this uh, steam engine which upped production massively and gave us an economic power that meant that we could then govern the systems of the world 
We managed to keep it through the locomotive, so George Stevenson's locomotive. And then we started the, that third wave of innovation, the, the, the age of steel. Britain was the leading steel manufacturer. But we started to become complacent at that. And the two rising global powers in steel were unsurprisingly, when you look at history, Germany and the US. And so as Britain started to lose market share in that innovation system, other powers started to rise to the top and started to challenge Britain. We then, of course, get through World War I, World War II. The U.S. takes the global order. And now we're finding that, so the U.S. then led the way after that in steel, in um, oil, in chemical engineering, the next wave. And then they led the way in the information technology age. Now they're starting to see a competitor. They are no longer that mm. hyperpower that they were a few decades ago. And that now again, that global order is being tested again. And there's uh, kind of rising tensions. Hence why you're seeing this kind of tension. So we went through the US-China trade wars because China is emerging as really one of the leading tech centers. Certainly when you look at some of the future tech, so batteries, AI, AR, uh, they really do have a good handle on it. Mm -hmm. And to make an ESG point, because you, you touched upon that a second ago, is there, a, is there a case that it's different now? Because we've had these eras of growth, we've had these innovations that have just you know, led to huge in increases of speed in the way we do things and produce things. But now there's a, a real sense of finite resources and that we can't, you know, economies for growth, everything for growth isn't necessarily sustainable. In fact, it looks like it's not sustainable at all. How does that impact the, the next wave of change? So I, I'm, I'm going to kind of argue against the idea that growth is incompatible with a green economy. Okay. Um, I, I think if you went back 100 years, you're completely and utterly right because the economy was based completely on physical, tangible products. Now, when you actually look at kind of the, even the valuation of companies, let's take US's biggest index, the S&P 500, 90% of its value is IP. Uh, that's how it's actually valued by investors. That isn't incompatible with a green economy. So what we're already seeing is digital assets have massive value, and it's going to become increasingly so. Um, so when you're kind of looking at that, I mean, the other thing going on is material technology. Uh, you know, we're talking already about we've seen advances in recycling, which means that we can have a circular economy. We don't have to necessarily go and get virgin materials to make stuff. We can we can take out things like planned obsolescence with with products and make them far more kind of uh, that they can be taken back apart and reconfigured in a new way that blends with the new understanding of technology and things like that. So I, I don't believe that growth is incompatible with a, with a green, sustainable mm -hmm. um, It's a new way. challenge that creates new markets. Absolutely. It's, it's a new demand. Mm -hmm. um, just, just as each of the other, other innovation cycles solved problems which society faced, the new wave of innovation is going to solve problems that we face today. And one of those problems is, of course, climate change, and resource depletion and, and all these different things going on, that's the challenge that businesses, the key businesses of tomorrow will be the ones which best solve that problem. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, and let's move on to the next topic, which is digital transformation. Okay. Which, again, linked to everything we've just talked about. Yep. Um, what I'd like to know is from your, you know, in your opinion, which of these aspects of digital transformation will impact our lives the most? And we're looking at things like automation, AI, hyper-personalization, even things like open banking, digital currency. What are the big ones for you? Uh, well, probably all of those. <laughs> and I think, I think where it becomes really big is when you combine all of those things. Because that's always the way, isn't it? I'm going to use the example of the mobile phone, actually. So, you know, prior to, again, 2007, I'm sure a listener will tell me if I've got these dates wrong, but prior to Steve Jobs getting up on stage 2007 and describing very crudely what the iPhone was, um, you know, that before that, the mobile was just a telephone device that you didn't have to be attached to a wall with a wire. What the smartphone did was combine technologies, and that's really the power of it. It wasn't just a telephone. It wasn't just a music player. It wasn't just, as Steve Jobs described it, an internet communication device. Um, it combined that. And so coming back to your point of all these digital transformations, the real power of it comes when you start combining them all. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think we see potentially huge social change because a lot of the structure around us is all based on very old ideas. And when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about really the corporate structure. So the first corporation, the first shareholder corporation was the Dutch East India Company, so 1600s. Um, and that was the first company to ever issue shares and bonds. And the, the key behind that was at that point, people could participate in a venture which was far bigger than any of their single wealth would allow or their risk tolerance would allow because they could say, okay, well, I'll just buy a share for this amount. I'm not risking all of my capital. I'm not risking all of my investments in one place. So that was revolutionary from a financing point of view. Where we get to today with blockchain is not only is blockchain uh, potentially a system which increases information sharing, transparency, um, kind of risk measures, because it's all suddenly this, this undeletable ledger, which is, which is visible, but it's also sharing value. And this is where we get into uh, kind of the idea that corporations in the current structure could be a thing of the past. Uh, in that you don't actually necessarily even need a corporate structure anymore with all its legal kind of uh, rigmarole because the the actual structure of blockchain could uh, it kind of replace that and be a far more secure system than a corporate structure ever has been. Mm -hmm. And so this is this is kind of where this happens. And I think the other the other kind of massive change for society, we touched on it very briefly before. Um, is the idea of a blurring of virtual and physical worlds. So we've kind of had a taste of it through COVID, but in a very crude, rudimentary sense, like Zoom, MS Teams, you know, all these yeah. things. It has flaws. It's not lifelike, but that's not going to be the way it's going to be in the future. In that it's going to be such an immersive experience that actually the, the virtual world will be almost indistinguishable from the real world and at that point you you bring in kind of borders suddenly stop mattering as much and this brings not only more ideas 
but also brings with it what I'm going to call a collective intelligence, which, again, this is a key thing. So let's go beyond the innovation cycles we've been talking about, is every time you have an information revolution, so we had that with the Gutenberg Press, mm -hmm. powered by the medium of sale, so Diaz and Columbus. We then basically had the telephone, which cut, I mean, if you think about it, it's absolutely mad that if you had uh, employees on the other side of the world, you before the telephone, you sent them a letter. Yeah. And you'd wait three weeks for them to get the letter, and then you'd wait three weeks for the letter to get back, or whatever the time was. Then all of a sudden, the telephone came in, and it was instant communication. You could speak to them. It doesn't matter where they are in the world. And now we've just gone through this idea of basically having instantaneous communication, but visual, and it's about to become kinesthetic. So, yeah. I mean, to, yeah. which ones are important? All of them are massively yeah. important. And and the, the whole structure of society, I think, changes. Also, that is the longest I've heard anyone discuss virtual reality about saying the word metaverse. Is there, is, <laughs> is, is there a reason why you didn't say it? No, not at all, actually. Um, uh, no, I mean... The, the metaverse, I think it's an important distinction, actually, because it is different to VR. Virtual yeah. reality is different to the metaverse. VR is a component. Um, but uh, but no, no, I nothing yeah. nothing against the word. <laughs> but no, I, I find it really interesting, all these trends working together to create a new future. And actually, that's you, you've given a good account of why blockchain could well be the future. And it's interesting from your perspective. We had an event last week where we had about, I'd say, 60, 62 wealth managers in the room. And I asked them if they'd invested in anything crypto related on behalf of the clients, sure. which is a risky thing to do in today's environment, I would say. One person raised their hand, okay. which is one more than I expected. Yeah. But do, do you think that the future is, is, the, is that most, if not all wealth managers will be dealing with blockchain led investment products? I, I, think, I think from the point of view, and I'm gonna separate out crypto assets or cryptocurrencies of what we kind of see people, I'm gonna call kind of a speculative investment of today, you know, we've got, what, 18,000 crypto assets out there at the moment. Um, and the actual blockchain technology behind it, mm -hmm. absolutely in the future, that blockchain technology is, is just such a better contract system than what we have at the moment. So completely, I expect, you know, that, that things move on to that, even if it's actually company ownership through a blockchain system. So this is why you're yeah. seeing... So many different banks, um, you know, JP Morgan's got, got stuff going on. Uh, this is why you're seeing the central banks all playing with digital currencies, because that is the way the world's going. Um, yeah, and this is the notion of a, of a trustless society, if yes. I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, which, which sounds bad, but trustless purely means that you don't need to trust institutions. You just know that things are going to work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of payment disputes go away because that's, that's again, a thing of where you know, kind of the contracts are being disputed. Well, that doesn't happen under a blockchain. Uh, actually makes, uh, it sounds like it puts solicitors out of a job, but actually solicitors become even more important getting the contract right on day one, mm -hmm. because it, once that's done, it's almost unchangeable. Um, you know, in our own industry, we have massive things around counterparty risk. That goes away. Um, it does have some massive implications for well, what's, you know, kind of where do banks sit in this? Mm -hmm. Where do central banks sit in this? Um, because all of a sudden those structures um, aren't really necessary, which is, uh, you yeah. know, quite, quite a, a scary concept, perhaps. It's certainly a radically different concept.
Well, certainly, and, we, and we've been hearing about the crypto brain drain as well, of course, in recent months with people leaving high-flying jobs in the city to go work for crypto companies. You, you do wonder what the, you know, it doesn't sound good for banks, does it, long-term, when no, you think about it? You know, yeah, and I, I, th I think there's still a role for them. Um, yeah, that, that This is the reason why you've seen such a turnaround in their sentiment. So Jamie Dimon, I'm going to go back to JP Morgan here, you know, kind of, it wasn't long ago that he was saying that all cryptos are frauds. I, th I think this was him. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure I'll get told off if it wasn't him that said this. But um, <laughs> uh, And then all of a sudden there's this massive turnaround and they have the, a huge R&D department and putting in millions of dollars into trying to work out how, how they can actually have their own cryptocurrencies. And this all of a sudden brings in the whole issue of even if you see the corporation survive, so I know I've kind of painted a picture of where the corporate structure might disappear, but why at the moment the the kind of legal structure of a company is you buy the com you buy a share and you you kind of that's that's the entire company. So if we went and bought some Shell stock, then we buy everything that we have a partnership in everything that Shell do. But under the, the kind of a blockchain system, there's actually no, no need for it to be such a, a generic idea. You could buy the upstream activity or the downstream acti activity, uh, or you could buy the, the forecourts, or you could buy whatever piece of that business you wanted. Now, the current legal structures don't allow this. And so we are talking about kind of theoretical things slightly, but as you will probably well know, a lot of the things which sound sci-fi uh, stop being sci-fi as you progress through time and suddenly they become reality. Um, so blockchain does dramatically change things. So yeah, coming back to your question, I think it will be incorporated in how we invest in the future, uh, but not necessarily with the assets and structures that we have in place today. Mm -hmm. and, and to go back to the point of digital transformation, because that's, that's key for all of this. Yeah. And also bearing in mind that you know, you mentioned J.P. Morgan's change of stance. I, I can imagine a lot of that is actually associated with the, the headaches of, of changing tack. It's not easy to do these things. And some, some information I found from McKinsey, uh, okay. some research in 2018, it showed that less than 30% of digital transformation strategies succeed. Now, I don't know what they mean by succeed. The link is now dead to the article that explains what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Um, on the flip side, they had 2020 research, which found that tech transformations are beneficial, nonetheless. 70% uh, of people who, who underwent them re reported that they had increased their existing revenue streams. 50% had noticed uh, re they've recognized new uh, revenue streams, and 76% reported they'd helped reduce costs. So we know, digi you know digital transformation is good, but we also know that it's difficult. You know, that thirty percent successful is, is pretty. pretty I, I'm, gonna, low. I, I'm gonna. Well, actually, I'm gonna say that's quite high. Um, you know, if you if you kind of uh, think about people setting up business, and again, I'm gonna just make up some figures here. But um, you know, you you kind of talk about new businesses have a ninety five percent failure rate. Mm -hmm. um, so suddenly, thirty percent success rate. I yeah, I I I'd take that. Um, and. Uh, this really comes back to what I, a point we touched on before, that once you get an emerging technology and capital flows towards it, this is where you actually need businesses in the economy to really test how this might work. Because it's not enough just to have an idea. It's not enough just to have, oh, I've got this new invention, this new technology. 
it still needs to be applied in a practical way. And so this is where companies are absolutely fundamental to driving human progress and how we get to the place of, you know, talking about the green economy and a world where we're not using so much material. Um, the, absolutely, we need companies to actually put into place small R&D departments and really just test stuff. Some of them, yes, they don't work out. But so mm -hmm. the ones that do then become the leading companies of the next wave up. Yeah, it's funny because something I wrote about two years ago was that this was looking at financial advice rather than wealth management. But I said that everyone should look to have a CTO. And if they didn't have one, you know, a chief technology officer. And if you didn't have one to at least seek some external guidance yeah. on what to do with your tech. Now you're in wealth management. How do you facilitate digital transformation at Dragon? Because that's you're in a, you're in an industry that isn't and for good reason too isn't necessarily ideal for changing things quickly and innovating so how do you make it work again i think i think it comes back to that you know kind of being aware of what's going on i think that's the key thing for any business is businesses don't need to suddenly jump in because you know mm -hmm. as we've been talking about that in that initial testing phase it is a little bit like the wild west in that you might stumble across the the application for what takes takes you into the the next wave and it, you know it's, you become the success but there's also that risk of it not working so it's for me it's not so much diving into a new technology and jumping in with two feet it's it's more about just being aware of the changes going on i mean within the within the investment world um, you know, certainly when you're talking about IFAs, wealth managers, investment managers, we we exist within a regulated part of, mm -hmm. of the universe as well. And this is something else which I think people don't fully understand is that not all parts of, of I'm just going to call it society, update at the same speed. So, and, and this is why actually transitions are, in, in my view, so painful because you, you get the fastest moving part of the economy i'm just going to call those actually trends i mean fashion trends mm -hmm. consumer trends they could change on a seasonal basis on a monthly basis you then get businesses as, an, as the next level down as the next kind of layer which updates slightly slower than the trends then beyond that you get infrastructure because infrastructure is of course only changing when business needs change so at the moment we're obviously seeing rollout of far faster internet because businesses are demanding well we've got far more need for kind of internet speed and everything else because everything's becoming far more digitally data heavy but then you go behind that and you get to then the change in policy so that's regulation and government government are very slow to update but when they do that's a huge force and a, a very rapid force and it's normally only at that point that the rest of society go oh my word we've got to suddenly change um, because it, it comes from a policy part. And this is what I'm saying is that change, you can actually watch those first three layers change quite gradually, mm -hmm. but just don't wait until that regulatory change comes along for you to start learning. Yeah. So for a wealth manager, what, what does that mean in, in practice? How do you prepare for the future? Um, I, I think it really just comes back to watching what is being developed uh, and understanding how that could be applied. Um, again, you know, the kind of the thing which I'm going to come back to is none of these things happen overnight. Uh, certainly when you're being 
diligent and curious about change. Um, so absolutely, you know, we've been talking about kind of how does blockchain change things. Um, it's understanding how that interacts with businesses. So I, I guess a good example of, of talking about this from an investment point of view, which is a very kind of hot topic right now, is, is ESG investing. And that's really a very similar conversation that you have the green economy and the brown economy. And you know, everybody has a slightly different take on this and a slightly different view. Those that believe that it's going to be very rapid change are really going, okay, well, we're going to di divest from the brown economy. We're not going to hold anything which is uh, not green or not uh, low carbon or whatever their criteria is and only invest in the, in the other part of the economy, the green economy. Um, and again, you know, kind of these, these things happen, but they take, they're not instant to come about. Uh, ESG has been with us in different forms. You know, you could go back through ethical investing. I know it's not slightly, mm. slightly different, but it's, it's part of the same family of thought, if you like. Um, so these things do take time. Mm -hmm. Okay. And one last thing on, on, on cryptocurrency. We talked about this, you know, the, whatever we're calling it, it's not the fourth industrial revolution and also how sci-fi kind of can become a reality. Would cryptocurrencies not appear to be almost the currency of the future? I mean, based on what you're saying about blockchain, working in, you know, trustless societies, the, the demise of, of, well, corporate structures to some extent. Yep. Um, you know, do you, do you not see that as a possibility? Um, so there are certain crypto, I think, again, let's, let's split these out into different things because, you know, of the 18,000 crypto assets, they're, they're not all cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. In fact, very few are cryptocurrencies. Um, the rest you can then split into, you know, some of them are more application driven, file driven, privacy driven. Um, and then you get into like the, the central bank digital currencies. So, you know, it's, 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 it's too tempting to kind of just block them all together. Um, but in terms of, of that question about, you know, kind of are those the future, that really depends on what governments do. Because at the moment, governments are kind of happy to let them exist and let financial transactions carry on. Um, but in this kind of uh, that those layers of society, we're now starting to get to the point where regulation is going to start coming out. Now, if a government wants to suddenly essentially ban a cryptocurrency, it's very hard to do so because it's decentralized, but they can certainly tax it into oblivion or they can put a lot of measures in place. Mm -hmm. So we saw China with Bitcoin um, essentially smash up all the mining. Uh, and those ones that survived bizarrely went to Texas. Well, not too bizarrely because it was cheap energy. Um, and so in terms of what actually survives from here is really kind of where its application is, is, is found. You know, certainly when you kind of come to this idea of corporations, let's just say Amazon launched its own uh, cryptocurrency, which was, which was well adopted. Well, you could almost have a whole community which exists around that and trades just in Amazon credits because they've got food production, they've got sports equipment, they've got anything you pretty much want. So what ones survive, I think it's still too early to say. But certainly you've got all these uh, cryptocurrencies and crypto assets testing what is possible. And I think what's important is they have achieved what I'm going to call proof of concept. Yeah. They have proved that actually there is a place for this and this is the likely technology that will take 
Um, but you know, coming back, I, I, I think we've said before, before we started recording this podcast, that sometimes the first to market is not actually the leader. So the Model T Ford led for a time when we talk about automobiles, but they're not still the most popular car out there. And so over time, things change. Um, yeah, which makes it a challenge to figure out when things are going to catch fire, doesn't it? I mean, again, back to your investment director role. What? what could you, you said this earlier, actually. You said that you don't want to be early, yeah, early to the party. How do you start to figure out that now's the right time? Is, what are the signs? So, in terms of in terms of technology, I think you always need to be aware of that bubble phase, and that's always the the key mm. thing. Um, and also, I mean, this is really where you bring in, you know, uh, ideas which the investment industry has adopted for decades, and, and that and that's diversification. Uh, you know, you bring this back to if you throw all of your eggs in one basket at one point in time, then yeah, you know, maybe maybe that plays off really well, but that's not called investing, that's called betting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, this is where the investment industry does have an awful lot to offer people because really one of the key things the investment industry is very good at is risk management. And certainly when you start to come to, to these new concepts, yes, you have to be aware of of kind of, well, just how much capital is flowing to this and is this getting to a bubble situation? Uh, but also, you have to have that risk management overlay when when you finally get there. Yeah, okay. And let's now talk about your podcast to okay. finish up, Transitional Matters. Uh, you know, what, what made you settle on the, the topic? Because the idea of this period of transition, it, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording, actually. You said yep. we're, we're in a transitional phase right now. Which is an interesting thing to say. So, so why do you think that is? Okay, so, for, so essentially, what what we have going on? This is again when we come back to this idea of the waves of innovation. So, the waves of innovation actually, um, it, it's not a new concept. Uh, in fact, it was a Soviet Russian economist, Nicholas Kondratov, uh, who came up with this idea, and then probably Schumpeter, who you, you've heard of, came up with the idea of creative destru- destruction. And so these go through very kind of regular cycles. And one of the things which happens is once you've had this uh, emerging technology, so let's just take the information technology revolution for a minute. So we're saying that each innovation cycle lasts about 50 to 60 years. Well, the information technology revolution really started in the 70s. So we're sort of year Mm 50-ish right now. but the other thing which typically happens is at the point of transition, as you come to that, capitalism becomes almost the, the worst word in society because it shows its worst colors. So you have inequality coming from the people who invested in the, the current technology paradigm right at the start, who obviously, uh, you know, kind of uh, in terms of multiples of wealth have far more than the average. Uh, you have rising populism at these times. You'd have social tension. So all of those things we can see happening right now. The other reason I think that we're at this transition is all those things that you've just talked about. I actually think that blockchain, potentially things like nanotechnology, which are now coming to the fore, are the next wave of innovation. So we're, we're kind of we're starting to get to um, information technology is now held as a as a, a norm, as a 
it, it would be strange for a business to set up and go, oh, no, we're not adopting any technology. We're not going to use the Internet. We're not going to use computers. We're going to use uh, just pad and paper, and we're, we're just going to communicate with people via mail. You know, that would be very strange. So actually what you've, you're saying is the information technology revolution is almost reaching saturation. It's not to say that it stops innovating, but it's now just it's the social norm to accept it. Whereas even 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, so at these points, those are all signs that we're coming to the end of one wave and the next one is about to start. Now, the reason why I'm so fascinated with transitions, actually the reason I wrote the book, Decoding Change, is because as a society, we need to get far better at standing back and looking at that framework and understanding how change happens. Because those points of transition are extraordinarily painful for society. Because all of a sudden, you're talking about a mismatch of skills in the general workforce in that the old world required certain skills which are now not required in the new paradigm and this is where you get so McKinsey and company have loads on this loads of the other um, economic forums and, and things have loads on this but essentially what they're saying is a combination of artificial intelligence augmented reality machine learning will it could easily replace about 30% of current workforce tasks. That's a, a huge amount. Um, and so these transitions, that, so this is why, kind of coming back to the podcast, why I think they're so important for us to understand. So the book I've written, Decoding Change, tries to lay out the framework and as well as, as how it affects us on a cognitive basis, where the podcast comes in, is really having those conversations with people who are the leaders in their field and how they see change happening from their perspective. So it's not just fund managers or investment managers. I've had everyone from energy experts, battery experts uh, on there. Uh, yes, there are some economists, some investment managers. Uh, there's a neurologist coming on um, because we have to understand change from all of these different perspectives we can't just look at it from one and think we get the whole picture yeah i think that's a fascinating take and, and funnily enough it's similar to why uh, we created this podcast and the newsletter that we have every week because you know advice and wealth i think is going through this transition as well and you mentioned 30 percent of tasks that could be automated that aren't i think we've probably got a similar situation here if not more and what that could do for the industry could be huge yeah, and, absolutely. you know, you're, you're working in it. I mean, I'm an outsider looking in who works closely with wealth management and advice firms. That's what I see. I mean, you're in one. Do you, do you think that's a correct premise? Yeah, I, I, I think there's so much. I mean, you, you look around today and there are there are industries which are still employing people, which um, you have to start questioning, well, why? Um, I'm going to come outside of investment management for a second because... Essentially, where industries have um, perhaps more staying power is where there's a trust relationship with another human being. Um, there is certainly, we, we respond well to others and we, we value the human input still. So where these technologies really come in is an assistive process. So it's, and this is something which is actually, you know, when you again look back through history, the skills have been valued by businesses more and more. So we've progressed again, like let's go all the way back. So the first industrial revolution, before that, the input was very much labor. 
that's that's all it was. Skills weren't particularly valued. Yes, of course, there were some industries where it was, but for the main bulk of society, it didn't matter if you were skilled or not. You had energy in you, you had biomass, you could offer your body to mm -hmm. plow a field or sow some seeds. And then progressively, as technology has taken away that labor part, skills have become more and more sought after and more and more valuable. And that's going to progress. So essentially where you see this issue, and, and this is this then becomes a real issue, is that it's, again, the lower skilled parts of the workforce and society, which unfortunately have the highest risk of their jobs being automated. Mm -hmm. And how much of your job do you think you can automate? Um, I should think, I mean, again, in, in all research jobs, we probably apply quite a lot of research anyway, mm -hmm. or automation and things like that. Uh, but certainly within research, there, there's scope for uh, increased uh, artificial intelligence, increased machine learning. Yeah. Um, not necessarily replacing people, but adding to yeah, exactly adding, adding to yeah. the, the amount of data which can be looked at. So, so Ray Dalio, Bridgewater, um, uh, he he has always spoken very kind of well on this topic because when he founded Bridgewater Associates, um, I, I don't know when it was, but let's say 80s, 90s, um, he was very early in adopting kind of early um, algorithms and things to assist him in how he saw what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's, it's those things that instead of actually replacing people, they increase what can be seen yeah and that, again that's something i completely agree with and i think we get i've said this before on the podcast i think we get lost in this idea of people versus machines or people versus robots and it takes away from the general message of progress and moving things forward oh absolutely and it's it's very easy at that point and and we, we i think to finish if mm -hmm. it's all right go for it um then we have to bring this back to kind of psychology because these points i mean the human brain hates uncertainty we absolutely detest it. In fact, we will do almost anything to find certainty, even if it doesn't exist. We just make stuff up. Um, and these points of transition, I think, are so important for us to understand because they are key points of uncertainty. Not just risk, like we deal with in an investment world, but actually um, uncertainty in the, in the almost unknowns about the future. You can't assign a probability. And so when you come back to this, it's very easy to become quite pessimistic about the future because you can't see it for all the noise going on. So I have a phrase that you have to dip below that noise to see these big trends, which provide a far calmer water to see what's going on. But from a psychology point of view, there's no wonder in my mind why we see rising anxiety, stress, fear about the future, because that this environment that we have, we portray as kind of, as you say, it's in the machines versus us. But that's not the case. They are, the technologies are very much additive and assistive to what we can do. And actually, when you trace innovation again, every time we up the ability for us as a human society to increase productivity, you bring with it general human progress and prosperity mm -hmm. 
I love that. I love the idea of embracing the uncertainty rather than fearing it, which I think Absolutely. is... Absolutely. And I, I think that comes from that. looking back and you yeah. see, well, if that has happened five, six times before, and actually you can go way further back in, in different ways, then why doesn't that happen again? So I, I am optimistic about the future. Yes, we certainly have hurdles to overcome. You know, climate change, I, I honestly do believe, is probably one of the biggest hurdles to humanity that we've had to face. Uh, but if we can actually come together, the innovative and adaptability of the human race is just incredible. Brilliant. I, I don't think I should add to that. That's a nice way to finish the podcast. Chris, thank you for joining the Wealth Tech Show. It's been a pleasure having you on. And thank you, of course, to everyone who's been listening in. I've been Ian Horn, and I'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Thank <laughs> you.